listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman, and we're joined with a friend of mine today, Godi Kamabata. Did I get that last name correct? Kamabata. Yeah, Godi Kamabata. Awesome. Yeah. So Godi has a wealth of, of knowledge and experience and a very interesting background as well. So we're super excited to have him on the show. Godi, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Sterling. It's uh, exciting to be here and always happy to talk real estate. It always uh, gets me excited talking multifamily with anybody or real, any real estate with anybody. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you are, where you came from, what you did before, or, or how you stumbled into real estate? Sure, sure. I mean, I can go all the way back. You know, I'm based out here in San Diego, California. I grew up here. I went to high school here. I went to college, graduated degree in uh, chemistry, degree in visual arts, did a double major, and then started working down the street in the biotech sector, which is really big out here in San Diego. So my day job, my career is as a biochemist, you know, doing early stage drug discovery for cancer and inflammation diseases. You know, I graduated from college, started that job, but I've always been kind of interested in real estate or always reading the newspaper back in, in college. We had a real estate section and, you know, how... how back when people you know, read newspapers. Yeah, back then. <laughs> yeah, I go back to my parents' house and just open up the newspaper and they'd show you the real estate prices in the area. And I noticed, you know, this kind of taking a peek at them from growing up to versus when I was in college. I'm like, oh, real estate prices are slowly peaking up. And just kind of reading the articles there, it got me interested and I actually, a few years out of college, I realized I could buy a, you know, I had kind of saved up money. I was living at home mm-hmm. and my salary was kind of slowly turning into a savings account. Didn't have a lot of rental expenses. So I said, you know, maybe I can buy a house. Maybe I, me and my, my parents can co-sign on a loan for me. I can basically pay the down payment. And, you know, I had a couple of roommates live with me. We, we found a house down near Mission Bay and um, I bought that house for... $250,000. It appraised for 300. And then the next year it was worth 400. This is just like 2001, the early stages of uh, California. California. <laughs> California. We get these booms like this. And then I did my first year's taxes and I realized, wow, look at all these deductions I'm getting from, you know, deducting mortgage interest and, and basically offsetting a lot of the taxable income I normally would got from my salary. And I said, wow, this is, this is a great incentive to own a house. And Soon after that, I talked to my mortgage lender and they said, oh, you know what? Uh, your home's worth more and the mortgage rates are dropping a little bit. Maybe you should refi. And I realized I could refi, take some money and bought a rental down the street. You know, I was in my uh, 20s. I had a lot of energy and excitement for it. So I said, yeah, I, I can do this. And, you know, I bought a rental. I ended up over the next few years, I bought two or three different rental properties as I could. And I, you know, managed them myself, kind of uh, learned just by putting in the sweat equity, you know, just learning if there was something my tenant told me and there was something I couldn't do, then I just look it up on YouTube, figure out how to fix it, figure out how to, how to wrap my head around it. If it felt like it was something that was above my head or above my pay grade, then, you know, I'd call in the professional. But I said, the worst I can do is like break a pipe and I'll have to call in the plumber anyways. Right. So I did that. And, you know, I basically remodeled a couple kitchens, bathrooms myself, you know, with some friends and that sweat equity turned into tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you figured out how to lay backsplash tile and granite from YouTube? <laughs> well, not, not that far. I mean, actually, the, all, all the countertops and stuff, I, I, yeah, that was above my head. But in terms of putting in cabinets, putting in bathroom tile, I did. Putting in the toilets, I did. Putting the grout in. 
learned a little bit of that, tried it my first time, figured out what I was good at. And I, if I did it a second time, I was decent at it. If I didn't do it a second time, <laughs> I was calling the professional after that. But yeah, putting in drywall, mudding up walls. I did that a few times before I <laughs> got tired of it. So where did your career kind of, cause you're in a whole different place than where the story is leaving off right now. Today, you have a, a rather large portfolio. Where did things kind of take off from your one or two rentals? Sure. Sure. So, you know, a few years down the line, 2006, 2007, I realized I could get, I think I was li- listening to a radio show or talking to an investment agent and they showed me that, you know, buying these properties out in California, I was buying them and hoping based on experience that everything would appreciate. Right. So I'd buy them, I'd barely cover, you know, the rent would barely cover the mortgage. And I go, yeah, but I'm paying down principal and the market is good. But at some point I realized, well, it's good to have some cash flow too. And I bought, you know, talking to an investment agent, they said, you know, you can buy in the Midwest, you can buy out of state, and you can get a lot more bang for your buck. They pointed me in the direction of kind of held my hand and said, hey, buy multifamily in the Midwest. We'll show you some properties. I bought a property back then, it was running for a 10 cap. 54 units out in Ohio and I got a 13% cash on cash return on it, you know, from day one. How did you buy that exactly? Did you have the cash saved up to put a down payment on a 53? Yeah. So I sold one of my single family homes and basically, yeah, I bought that with my, my equity from my California sale Nice. and uh, you turned one unit into 54. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, from there, my investment agent helped me say, hey, this is the property management that you know you can trust. He kind of helped me vet stuff and kind of guide me. It's really important, I think, to have someone with experience. I mean, when you're taking these leaps, either you need the education, which you know you provide through like podcasts and stuff, or you listen. Back then, they didn't have podcasts. So you need a mentor, right? If you don't have the resources of information, yeah, and a mentor. So the investment agent was kind of my mentor. He had owned multifamily or shopped multifamily before. He knew what to look for, knew how to kind of find a property management. I, I leaned on him in those first few years to kind of understand what I was getting into. And then slowly through experience owning that, I kind of figured out what I need to, to look for, how I need to manage a property manager, what I want out of that investment. And slowly I was able to you know realize a few years down the line that, okay, my property manager you know, isn't the right one for this property at this point in time. I, I always feel like for that property, I always had the right property manager at the right point in time, but I always kind of changed based on the needs of my property. So yeah, I've, I owned that for a while. And I mean, I've actually, I just sold that a couple of weeks ago. So it was 14 years I held that property and uh, made like a 9x overall return on that initial equity. But I mean, I refinanced that property five years ago and took all my initial money out. And it's been just giving me cash flow all through that time. But that property was my first step into multifamily. I invested, you know, a few years later, I started investing in duplexes out in Texas. You you went backwards. You went and got a 54 year, and then you went back to the little ones. Yeah, I ran out. It surprises me when I see these guys that I know have done like these 50 and 60 unit deals. And they're like talking about the duplex they just bought. You just, you, you never think about people going backwards. Yeah. Yeah. And that was more, I mean, I was doing it myself. I didn't even get to the point, like when you start thinking about syndications and it's going bigger and bigger, I didn't even know that existed at at that point in time. I was just doing that with my, I said, Hey, here's this bucket of money. I'm buying a 54 unit. How much do I have left? What can I buy? Right. Right. So I go, okay, well I can buy some duplexes now. (laughs) But, But yeah. And then 
later down the line, the the whole the light went off with syndication. And I said, why am I? Why would you go backwards at that point? But that wasn't in my head at that moment in time. But I'm glad I still invested in Dallas because those duplexes now, you know, slowly rolled into bigger units. They rolled into 12 mm-hmm. units. They rolled into 33, and now I own 33 units and 64 unit complexes out in the uh, Texas area. Well, Texas is a wonderful place to own those kind of complexes. Did you sell everything you had in California in the 2006, seven area? Cause if you did, that might've been a genius insight. <laughs> no, that would have been, that would have been great. I think I had two rentals left around 2007, 2008. And I mean, I had them. So one of them, I think I sold at 2009 and it was still at a profit cause I bought it in 2001. It just wasn't as high as it was in 2005. And then the other one, I just kept through it all. I kept through it all. I kept it rented. I had a, you know, my variable rate mortgage just kind of had a, you know, had a nice interest rate. I was still kind of making my payments and everything. So even though the value had shot down, I didn't sell that until 2016. And then, you know, everything had come back up at that point and I sold it for a nice profit. And then I moved that into one of the multifamilies I bought in Texas. That's such a great point when it comes to like housing market collapses and real estate investing, because, you know, you hear all these horror stories and you hear about people that went broke in 2008, but you know, we buy cash flow in real estate and I always, it's a joke, but it's true. I always tell people like, I remember 2008, like I was a freshman in college. I'm pretty sure I still paid my rent every month. Like I didn't call my landlord and say, Hey, I don't know if you heard there's a housing market crash, so I'm not going to pay my rent. You know what I mean? Like my rent didn't go down. He didn't call me and say, Oh yeah, there's a market crash. You can pay less this month. So I think it's a testament to the security in, in what we're doing with the, you know, the cash flow. And, and I, Something just occurred to me when you had said that the interest rates were were real low during the crash. And, you know, now that I think about it, they're typically forced low during like kind of economic decline time periods. So do you feel as if that makes a variable interest rate product less scary and volatile to use? I try and push everything to long-term fixed rate loans. It doesn't work, but like theoretically, that's what I'd like to do. Yeah. And I mean, the loan I was on was a a five-year fix that went variable around like 2008, 2009. And I said, oh, it went variable and actually shot down like a couple of percent from the fixed rate just based on where it was back, you know, five years prior. So and I'm like, oh, look, my mortgage payment actually went down a little bit. And to your point, I think as long as you have cash flow with a property and you have a long-term mindset with your property, you can be insulated from market events. If the market crashes, when the market crashed, if I was covering my mortgage with it and I don't need that money at that moment in time, I'm insulated from all the market. As long as my property is doing well, I'm keeping it rented, you know, you're keeping it at a reasonable occupancy, then you can wait and bide your time until you need to sell, right? The market is only effective to you when you need to liquidate, when you need a liquidation event, right? Or maybe when you need to refinance, but if you buy a property with the intent that this is how it's going to operate for the long term, that's kind of your risk mitigation in some ways. And then to touch on your point regarding variable rates, I was actually talking to a mortgage lender just this week, and we were discussing this. If you, if at any point in time in the past 20 or 30 years, and I actually heard this on a podcast like last year, so I was kind of repeating this point. If at any point in time in the past 20 or 30 years, you chose a variable rate, and it was, I think, a study that was done. If you chose a variable rate mortgage versus a fixed rate, 
you're actually coming out ahead. Sure. Right. And I mean, in some, some of it's hindsight, just because we know we always, everyone's always thinking, well, mortgage rates are going to rise up another couple percent or they're going to start shooting up. And even right now, they, they should only go up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but at any point, a variable rate is always going to be a little like if fixed rates are at four, then variable rates are probably at three. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're getting that variable rate for 3%. You're getting a better rate than what you would have done fixed. The, Fear is, well, what if it gets up to five, right? Where, which is higher than where it was fixed. Well, the mitigation to that is, well, by the time it gets to four or five, maybe you can just lock it in at that point at a fixed rate, right? So you're locking it in. If you think, okay, everything's starting to go sour, let me lock it in. But if you just hold on and hold steady, it's going to be a while before that variable rate gets to a point where it might start eating at your profits enough that it's hazardous. So in some ways, variable, it seems counterintuitive, but not that I've fully practiced the variable rate thing, but in the past few years, I've been kind of like, well, now I've got a bigger portfolio. I've got a lot of fixed rate stuff. Maybe I should dabble with variable rates because you're getting a, if you're getting a few percent lower and you're able to have a contingency if the market changes to turn it into a fixed product, or if you have that flexibility, maybe it's worth exploring. It's not something I've fully explored, but I do always think about that. <laughs> That's that scientific mind of yours. <laughs> so at what point in your career then did you make the transition over to like syndication or bringing in partners and not just buying properties with your own money? And what did that transition look like and how much did it help you grow? Yeah, it was just, I think three, th- about three years ago, three, four years ago was when I was selling my San Diego properties and really buying larger multifamily the trouble I was finding was trying to find good brokers to find deals and finding deals out of state and just feeling like I was a little bit disconnected from the knowledge and the kind of network that I needed. And I joined a investment group out in Dallas that was kind of multifamily focused. I joined that group. Barely, actually, I talked to a mortgage lender who said, hey, you should join this group. They help people grow and do larger deals. And it's just a network of multifamily-minded people. And I joined this group and it was just a wealth of knowledge. And once again, it, it comes to the point that, you know, mentorship, network, all this knowledge is basically the, the fuel that kind of accelerate your growth, right? So joining that group, I kind of real, realized what syndication can do and what the power of syndication in order to, to grow a portfolio. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, I've got all this expertise from owning my own properties all this time. And I've just been kind of scrapping up to get to the next level when I could totally utilize this expertise and basically help other people who want to passively invest to get into these larger properties. So I felt like I already had a component just through the experience. And all, all I needed now was kind of the fundraising and the ability to put, put deals together. So joining that investment group really just Open gave me the idea that I didn't realize you can syndicate this stuff. Let me, let me start talking to my friends and family. Let me start building this investor network. And shortly after, you know, I started looking at a deal with a couple of partners and we found a 64 unit property out in uh, Kansas City that was a, a decent target. We, we took it down a couple of years ago and that was my first syndication deal. Another six or nine months later, me and a partner, it's not so much a syndication deal, but we had a few minority partners in. We bought a, a 64 unit property out in Texas and those were my first kind of uh, partner deals or syndication deals within the past couple of years. And I'm now looking to, to do even more. Awesome. So 
it sounds like a lot of the deals you've targeted and been involved with are like the 50 to 60 unit ranges. And we often hear in the syndication world, everybody says, oh, 100, 100 plus units, 100 plus units, economies of scale. Those are the ones that can hold on-site management and it would just go so much better. So is there a particular reason you go with the smaller units? Is it less competition or is it, what's your reasoning behind that size unit? Some of it was necessity out of, you know, those are my own properties and my own money, right? So that was, I was hitting that ceiling of what can I do on my own? And then some of it was discomfort level. When I syndicated the first deal, I was, I probably was looking too small versus just having that mindset. Fear factor. Yeah, exactly. I said, oh, this is what I know. So let me do this so I can bring investors on and feel comfortable with their money. Right. At the same time, I passively invested in 400 unit deals and 500 unit deals. And I look at those numbers, I go, yeah, the economies of scale are here. It does totally make sense to do this. So some of it is like, okay, how can I raise that much money to buy a few hundred unit deal? So some of that is fear that I haven't got to that level yet. I'm, I'm actively looking at hundred plus unit deals right now. So some of it's just yeah, me kind of progressing along that way. At the same time, knowing about 50 unit deals, 60 unit deals, uh, the smaller under 80 unit deals, I believe in what I've read from studies is the occupancy on those smaller communities is a little bit better than, you know, the larger deals. What do you think that causes that? Um, I think it's sometimes when you've got a smaller community, you don't have the pools, you don't have gyms, you don't have the weight rooms, you don't have all of the extra amenities. Plus, it's not like ten a 10 building community, it might be two or three buildings. And some tenants dislike the smaller feel, like a small little village yeah. or a small little community versus needing to be in this jungle of 100 units. And this yeah. it feels a little bit more dense, right? So yeah. I think there's a certain draw to it for some tenants. It is, hey, this feels like a little bit more peace and quiet mm-hmm. to live in this 30-unit property versus uh, being in the 50-unit property. And the rents, you know, w- property with amenities might be just a little bit more expensive because it's got the amenities versus property without might have a little bit lower rents. So there's that kind of economic draw as well. And then in terms of competition, I think you're right. When I compete for deals, when I talk to brokers, it's a lot of kind of high net worth individuals who are bidding on these properties and not always kind of syndications who are bidding on these properties. So I've more easily won deals in that kind of range. I've also noticed we, we tend to get a little more love and attention when we're going after the smaller ones. Yeah. And so it's a question I ask myself is like, what, what am I bringing to the deal when I'm bidding on a deal? What am I bringing to it? How am I differentiating myself or how am I going to do this differently than the next guy who's bidding on it or the institution who's bidding on it? And I always try to have an answer for that question, you know, and I feel like with these smaller properties, I feel like, okay, well, there's more meat on the bone because it's me. It's, it's not investors where I have to promise them a profit. So I feel like I can be a little bit more aggressive in my bidding and the way I want to run it or the way I want to operate it. Maybe my expectations are a little bit more laxed or maybe my, you know, my underwriting, I don't need as strong a return Mm -hmm. as, you know, an investor driven deal might be, or in some cases, you know, some markets I have, I've got, you know, great property management. I go, okay, look, this property management can come in, they can do rehabs at, 4k a door versus another property management might need to do six or seven, you know, a construction group might need six or seven K a door. So mm-hmm. if you've got some sort of advantage, whether it's your return outlook or your property management, just your knowledge of the uh, particular sub market, 
then that's what's hopefully going to help you win the deal by just being able to underwrite it that much more sharper. Got it. So what is something you would have done differently if you, if you'd like could kind of start over with your real estate investing, going back to like knowing everything you know today? That's a great question. I think I went into multifamily, I think at a, at a good point, it's hard to say that I would have gone quicker, but if I was able to push instead of go, like you said, going into duplexes in 2009, 2010, I think if I pushed everything five years earlier and just started like learning about syndication and being able to partner and being, being more networked in real estate and just kind of, you know, meeting the right people or finding the right mentors who are doing what I'm doing now, 10 years ago, I wish I had that kind of access. So I could have been doing this back in, you know, from 2010 to 2020, when things were really, really ramping up in a lot of markets. I wish I just had more of that access and this kind of made those leaps at that point in time. Yeah. Well, it's certainly all out there today. You know, I often like kind of think about how like investors in the seventies used to have to operate versus like real estate investors. Like I learned everything I know about real estate investing between like YouTube videos and podcasts. Like, could you imagine like in the seventies having to go like to the local library to pull one of the four books that had been written about? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, for me starting in like the early two thousands, I, I, I continually think about that. Like how were people are doing it in the nineties with like phone calls and how would they know they were calling the right people? And like, you're stuck with a few options and there's probably a, handful of people it was just dominating the industry right yeah it's amazing how things got done back then it was probably a lot a lot slower so what's next for you um next i'm looking for deals right now to basically get that 100 plus unit deal syndicate a larger deal and really build new teams i think not only just doing my own deals but helping to i mean with the expertise and kind of length I've been in the multifamily industry. I, I want to be able to mentor other people who are just kind of coming up and kind of partner with them and, you know, help their growth as well. I mean, I think what I enjoy about this is there's a purposeful aspect to what I do and what I try to have, be purposeful in everything I do. I mean, my career, I'm doing science. I'm hopefully helping patients by helping build drugs. In real estate, I just want to build win-win situations, whether that's building a better community for the tenants or just building great relationships with the people I work with, the better their lives. Obviously we all hopefully make a profit. We all make good money, but also we impact each other by just, you know, working with each other and making a positive impact on a daily basis. So that's the kind of the foundation of everything I want to do. And yeah, obviously buying more properties, going bigger in multifamily, but building the right teams. And I think one of the reasons why I've stuck with my day job so long is because I get to talk to so many smart people about smart ideas and just kind of really do great science. And as I build more teams and I've got some great relationships in real estate now, but as I build more and more of those great teams and great relationships, I think that's, what's going to eventually make me want to quit my day job is because now I've got multiple people I'm working with here that I love working with. And I know we can make an impact with together. So I think that's, that's kind of my next, puzzle is to kind of make sure I I build some good teams and build really good networks that I want to just be with for the long term in terms of growing real estate. Yeah. That's one of the beautiful things I feel about, and it's not really real estate specific, but it's entrepreneurial specific because you can work with who you want to work with. I was talking to one of our partners the other day that just had a baby and 
he needed to like kind of step back and go kind of take care of the baby he just had. I said, man, go do it. Like, I don't know. I wouldn't even want to work with somebody who wouldn't go do that. You know, (laughs) that's like what I love about the entrepreneurial and the real estate life versus the corporate life is all those guys are, you know, at the big corporate monster, they're ignoring their family to be there to, to constantly climb the ladder. And it's just a different environment that we create in this, in this real estate and this entrepreneurial where we're trying to create a better life for ourselves, where it's not all about the, the financial success and the fi- I mean, the financial success affords us the liberty to spend more time helping people and to spend more time with our families and to overall become better people people. Whereas I don't, I don't get that vibe as much in corporate America as I do in, in this culture. Yeah. I think is there something about the freedom and once you're kind of free from that nine to five aspect where you're obviously, you know, supposed to focus on your job and your task again and again, it can be great work. If you're passionate about that job and task, it's, it's great, but it can be one dimensional because a lot of people get work that nine to five, they come home, they're tired and they're just, they don't think about other aspects of their life or like their health, their fitness or, or, you know, just kind of their own personal growth or learning in, in different directions versus the entrepreneurial mindset. It's not only just how can I build a business, but a lot more of those people are also, how can I build myself? How can I build my mind? How can I build my body? How can I build my network? They see how they're all interconnected. You know, I often say like the best thing I do for my business is exercise and pray and meditate every morning because it, it allows me to function at a higher level throughout the day, you know, and that's getting into spirituality and fitness, which you don't typically directly correlate with um, job productivity output. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs focus on like self-improvement more often and, and kind of like seeing how everything is interconnected there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very, it's much more, your power is much more dynamic from coming from so many sources versus just your mind or just your, just your knowledge. Yeah, for sure. Well, I really wanted to hop right into our radio round where we kind of help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. It's just three questions. So the first one is, what's your favorite book? Favorite book? I need to read more. I haven't read anything in the past six months. But one of my favorite books I've read in the past couple of years, I mean, there's a lot of real estate greats and such. But actually, I'm going to pull up there's a book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, and it's about how the brain works. And there's kind of like the lizard brain aspect, and there's the more thoughtful brain behind that. And it kind of gives a good um, insight into how we think, how we impulsively take action, and how we thoughtfully take action. It's a book that sticks with me, those ideas that stick with me whenever I'm making decisions. Awesome. I'll have to check it out. What's your favorite quote? Favorite quote? I've actually been looking the past month. I, I think I, I need to get this on a little uh, canvas in my office, but it's a, uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. That's an awesome one. Uh, you can't see it because I have the virtual background because my, my office is a mess, but I have canvases with quotes in my office when I, when I think good ones, but, but yeah, that's absolutely a classic. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Outside of work. We got a, Family. I love snowboarding. I mean, I've been snowboarding for years. I love hiking. I've got a, a wealth of talking again about being dynamic. I love, I mean, bicycling. Yeah, just being active, being outdoors. Awesome. Awesome. So I really appreciate you joining the show, Gody. It was great getting to know you a little bit better and talk to you more. 
how can our listeners find out more about you or get in touch with you? You keep mentioning how you want to build bigger teams and be involved and, and expand your network. So how can folks get in your network? That's a good question. I don't have a great, I don't have much of a platform online, but I mean, just simply just shooting me an email, shoot me an email at godi.combata at gmail.com. And I love talking to real estate. I love talking to new people. I love talking to people with experience and just, uh, you know, sharing what I can to help people accelerate their growth. So, I mean, I'd, I'd love to get on a call with anybody, H-A-M-B-A-T-T-A at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining, Gody. I really appreciate it and look forward to keeping up with you, all your success in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sterling. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Cressworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.